all art is technology, and all artists eventually end up pushing against that technology. This is for our love of a galaxy far, far away. It's a galaxy as big as our imaginations, or as close as a member of the family. This is Forever Star Wars. Hello there. Movies are kinetic. Think about it. A film is just a series of still images that race by so fast they create a sense of motion. That's why we call them motion pictures, right? Those images flash by at 24 frames per second. From the moment a film begins, we are expected to buy into the illusion. It's a mutually beneficial arrangement between audience and filmmaker predicated on a simple idea. The audience wants to be fooled. To paraphrase a quote from the film V for Vendetta, artists use lies to tell truths. Hi, I'm Mark Marquis, a writer for ClashingSabers.net. In this episode, I want to showcase one of my favorite scenes from Star Wars The Phantom Menace, the pod race. It occurs approximately 55 minutes into the movie, and in my opinion, it's a hallmark of George Lucas's talent as a visual storyteller. The prequels are often criticized, sometimes justly, for an over-reliance on CGI, computer-generated imagery. But that can be said for most blockbusters, then and now. What is a computer effect if not a way of achieving the impossible? Sometimes, that goal misses the mark. Bad CGI can actually take us out of the moment. We already know on a subconscious level that what is being presented to us isn't real. Great special effects allow us to suspend our disbelief. The way I embrace much of the Star Wars prequels is to view those films almost as though they're animated. I don't consider cartoon to be a four-letter word. So that's an approach that works for me. Your mileage may vary. After he completed the three movies in the Star Wars saga, Lucas needed a break from filmmaking. He wanted to focus more on his family and devote his life to raising his children. He had ideas in mind for the backstory to Star Wars, in which he could reveal how Anakin Skywalker became Darth Vader, but he was skeptical that he'd get a chance to do so. He felt somewhat hindered by the limits of technology in the first three Star Wars, and he wasn't in a hurry to make more. But in 1993, that all changed. When Lucas saw Jurassic Park, Directed by his longtime friend Steven Spielberg, he knew that technology had finally caught up with his imagination. He could populate his galaxy far, far away with any kind of character and visit any kind of planet. The sky was no longer the limit. It was just the beginning. Lucas might have been a bit eager to jump into this new technology before fully understanding its limitations, but frankly, I don't blame him. As we heard at the start of this episode, Lucas believes that art and technology are interchangeable. While that statement may be open to debate, it certainly defines his instincts as a storyteller. How many of us, when presented with a virtually unlimited palette, wouldn't want to experiment with every color available? At least initially. Lucas's vision was no longer restricted by limits. 
Instead, his vision could drive technology right to the edge of what was possible. In the context of the time, it's easy to understand why this was so appealing after the frustrations he faced in the original trilogy. The behind-the-scenes documentary of The Making of the Phantom Menace, entitled The Beginning, Making Star Wars Episode One, features a fascinating glimpse behind the curtain of the creative process. I'll describe it for you. Lucas is in a room with members of his effects team. Two guys haul in several large storyboards mounted on foam core. Imagine rows and rows of little black and white hand-drawn cartoons, which basically lay out the blocking of each scene. Lucas takes two colored Sharpies, one bright fluorescent yellow, the other fluorescent pink, and marks areas of each storyboard frame to determine how the shot will be realized. Pink for practical, yellow for CGI. Real, real, not surreal, not surreal, not surreal. As he's doing this, the camera cuts away to the reaction on the faces of his effects team and the looks of abject terror in their eyes. How are they going to pull this off? I know this is going to work. I know it's going to work because it's impossible. You know, we're pushing the envelope in a few places, but the biggest issue is volume. Yeah. It was just the amount of stuff. Yes. And, of course, that's the part that creates the, the world. Well, we don't have a real good way of doing that right now. So, <laughs> that's, so that's where that some real innovation. Yeah, I know, that, that is the challenge. Though. Exactly. Think, that's that's the set piece. Yeah. yeah. The, the whole thing is that how are you going to top the pod race? Yeah. yeah, because it's pretty intense. I'll be exhausted by the time in the end of the pod race. I'll be ready to go home. Hopefully it'll work. Inspiration for the pod race was born out of Lucas's love for racing and automobiles. This love affair was chronicled in the 1973 Best Picture nominee, American Graffiti. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock, we're going to rock. The movie stands as a time capsule, which preserves the cruising and rock and roll culture of Lucas's youth in Modesto, California in the 1960s. I wanted to be a race driver and I was a mechanic through most of high school. So to me, cars were my life and that's what I thought I was gonna end up doing was, was being a mechanic and racing cars the rest of my life. So the cars were very central to me in the movie and the relationship that the people had with the cars. And I, it sort of got into an area that I was very interested in, still am, in terms of man's relationship to machines. A near-fatal car crash at the age of 18, in which another driver broadsided him, caused Lucas to reevaluate his life and lose all interest in racing as a career. So he enrolled in junior college and later film school, but he never gave up on his love for racing and car culture. His first projects involving an 8mm camera were filming races, where his instinct for the sport matched his eye for storytelling. The pod race sequence in The Phantom Menace was a chance for Lucas to incorporate a little slice of Americana into a fantasy setting. He brought all of his knowledge and visceral language of racing into the creation of those scenes. It was his way of putting the audience in the driver's seat and allowing us to experience what he had felt behind the wheel of fast and powerful vehicles of his youth. But it wasn't just his love of racing that inspired the pod race scene. Lucas also found inspiration in the 1959 classic, Ben-Hur. The film starring Charlton Heston was the kind of sprawling historic epic that Hollywood was known for in the 1950s. 
The title character is a Jewish prince who is betrayed by his best friend and sold into slavery. An act of heroism results in Ben-Hur being granted his freedom and rising through the ranks of Roman nobility, until eventually he competes in a chariot race against the very man who betrayed him years earlier. This chariot race shares many similarities with the pod race from The Phantom Menace. From the fanfare which heralds the start of the race to the brutality of the race itself, in which pods, much like some of the chariots in Ben-Hur, are designed for sabotage and maximum destruction against competitors. Chariots of ancient Rome were not used as vehicles of warfare, but as vessels of sport or pageantry. The races took place inside the Circus Maximus, a racing stadium in Rome that held 150,000 spectators, and which was the obvious inspiration for the most Espa arena in the Phantom Menace. Chariot races typically feature 12 vehicles, pulled by sets of horses galloping around an oval track. The races were held on calendar dates of religious significance or as ceremonies to celebrate recent victories. The site of the Circus Maximus was chosen for its proximity to several ancient shrines, which were believed to be discovered by Romulus, the founder and first king of Rome. Romulus was said to have held racing events there, which were so spectacular, nobody had eyes for anything else, according to Roman historians. And so the circus was an extension of this philosophy. The seat of power provided spectacular diversions as a means to control the masses. Greek writer and philosopher Dio Chrysostom described the spectators of these events as, quote, a people to whom one need only throw bread and give a spectacle of horses, since they have no interest in anything else. When they enter a theater or stadium, they lose all consciousness of their former state and are not ashamed to say or do anything that occurs to them." End quote. While not included in the sweeping power structure of the Galactic Republic, the Outer Rim territories were nevertheless affected by its increasing expansion and establishment of trade routes, which often disrupted the Outer Rim with instability. Crime was rampant on harsher, less governed worlds like Tatooine, which was so desolate and unforgiving, it became a haven for bounty hunters, smugglers, and gangsters who could indulge in their vices far from the bureaucratic grip of the more civilized Republic. Pod racing, much like in ancient Rome, occupied the unruly inhabitants of the Outer Rim, which allowed the corruption on those worlds to flourish unabated. Aside from small settlements of moisture farming, gambling was the economic bedrock of Tatooine and the center for all other ancillary commerce such as junk dealers, black marketeers, and slave trade. It was a young slave, in fact, who was the first and only human to ever compete in the pod races due to his size and a talent for avoiding danger on the course. He was discovered by two Jedi Knights who were fleeing a Separatist invasion of Naboo with its queen in their protective custody. They landed on Tatooine for refuge and to make repairs to their ship. The young slave named Anakin Skywalker was working in a junk shop owned by a Toydarian dealer named Watto. Unable to procure the necessary parts from the shop owner, they were taken into the home of young Anakin and his mother Shmi, where they discussed their dilemma with the Skywalkers. These junk dealers must have a weakness of some kind. Gambling. 
Everything here revolves around betting on those awful races. Pod racing. Greed can be a powerful ally. I built a racer. It's the fastest ever. There's a big race tomorrow on Boonta Eve. You could enter my pod. Anakin. Wato won't let you. Wato doesn't know I've built it. You could make him think it was yours and get him to let me pilot it for you. I don't want you to race. It's awful. I die every time Wato makes you do it. But Mom, I love it. The prize money would more than pay for the parts they need. Anakin. Your mother's right. Is there anyone friendly to the Republic who can help us? No. Mom, you say the biggest problem in this universe is nobody helps each other. I'm sure Qui-Gon doesn't want to put your son in danger. We'll find some other way. No. There is no other way. I may not like it, but he can help you. He was meant to help you. This concept of fate, or things happening for a reason, is a common theme throughout these films. It's intrinsic to the basic principle of the Force, that all life is connected, and change ripples through the Force and everything connected to it. Much later in the timeline of the saga, a conversation occurs aboard the Millennium Falcon when Luke Skywalker questions Han Solo about his spiritual beliefs. You don't believe in the Force, do you? Kid, I've flown from one side of this galaxy to the other. I've seen a lot of strange stuff, but I've never seen anything to make me believe there's one all-powerful force controlling everything. There's no mystical energy field controls my destiny. It's all a lot of simple tricks and nonsense. I suggest you try it again, Luke. This time, let go your conscious self and act on instinct. <laughs> With the blast shield down, I can't even see. How am I supposed to fight? Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. Stretch out with your feelings. You see? You can do it. I call it luck. In my experience, there's no such thing as luck. Luck and A Fool's Hope are literally the driving forces behind the gambling culture on Tatooine. And to make matters worse for the players, the pod races are rife with cheating. But this rigged system is something Qui-Gon knows he can exploit to his advantage. For Qui-Gon, there is no luck. What happens regarding the races is a combination of cause and effect, and the will of the Force. And he believes Anakin is strong in the Force. Anakin can see things before they happen, and his connection to the Force gives him an edge over those who would rely simply on skill, or cheating, or chance. It's for this very reason that Qui-Gon seizes an opportunity to win Anakin's freedom by wagering his ship against the release of the boy and his mother from slavery. Watto refuses to allow both Shmi and Anakin to go free, so he pulls out a chance cube, or as we like to call it, a die, with red and blue sides, and suggests that luck will determine the outcome. Blue for Anakin, red for his mother. But as Watto flicks the cube across the sand, Qui-Gon brushes his hand discreetly over it, causing it to land on Blue. You won this small toss outlander, but you won't win the race, so it makes little difference. Did Qui-Gon cheat? Well, no, from a certain point of view. 
Qui-Gon believes that Anakin was meant to help them. He also believes that Anakin is special and is meant to travel back with them to the Jedi Temple. It's the will of the Force, so Qui-Gon doesn't believe that it was ever a matter of chance. Watto's gesture with the cube is meaningless, and therefore Qui-Gon is simply assuring that Watto will have no recourse but to agree to Anakin's release. It's also possible that Watto's chance cube was fixed. After all, cheating is commonplace in pod racing, and perhaps Qui-Gon knew this and simply adjusted the variables to allow the Force to make the call. Either way, the result was the same. If Anakin won the race, not only would the prize money be more than enough to repair their ship, Anakin would also win his freedom. But this detail Qui-Gon kept to himself. The young boy already had enough stress and danger on his shoulders. It was best if he didn't know exactly what was at stake. The establishing shot of Mos Espa Arena is one of my favorite images in the movie. It's a blend of digital and practical effects. The stadium and starting grid, chiseled out of the natural surroundings of the canyon, were models, along with the smooth, sun-bleached buildings nestled inside the stadium. The trumpets signal a grand event and an awaiting spectacle for the Boonta Eve classic attendees, the crowds of which were achieved with digital effects, but also practical. Spectators too small for the eye to see were nothing more than Q-tips painted in different colors a surprisingly low-tech approach for a movie that is criticized for having too much computer animation. Going back for a moment to my earlier point about how I view the prequels as animated movies, I'm a staunch defender for using digital effects to pack the screen with detail that would be otherwise impossible. When the camera pans across the starting grid, there is so much to take in that only repeat viewings can do it justice. There are dewbacks and rontos lumbering through the background, pulling pods into their starting positions. The race contestants such as Ben Quadraneros, the multi-limbed Gascano, and Tinto Pangeles accept their adulation from the cheering crowds. It's a visual sugar rush that was nothing less than astounding at the time. And yes, it does all have a kind of cartoonish flair. But by meeting it halfway on those terms, I'm still able to enjoy it after all these years. Flags of a dozen worlds are paraded onto the starting grid in front of rows of waiting pod racers. The racing pods also come in a surprising assortment of shapes, sizes, and colors. Their chipped paint displays stripes and symbols and graffiti, advertising sponsorship, or the various worlds they represent. The pod engines are connected by a power binder, and the engines themselves come in all manner of design, from sleek rocket ship shapes, reminiscent of the fenders of classic American automobiles, to the exposed circuitry of jet engine turbines, which favor intimidation over aesthetics. They have cool names like the Voltec KT-9 Wasp or the Volpterine 327. Anakin's custom-built racer is small, much like its pilot, but just like its pilot, it's formidable. The cockpit is silver with blue stripes and shaped like a desert beetle. Anakin is undoubtedly the hero of this race, but every race needs a bad guy. And what a bad guy we get. So Bulba is one of the most imaginative character creations in all of Star Wars. He's a lean, wiry alien of the Doug species who walks on his hands and drives with his feet. 
This topsy-turvy anatomy sounds ridiculous, but he's fascinating to see in motion, and pretty ingenious from a design standpoint. He shouldn't work at all, but he does, beautifully. He was created by character artist Terrell Whitlatch. I thought to myself, what animal is almost always grumpy or it seems to be grumpy? You look at him, that's a camel. You start off with the basic camel head and stick on some kind of gnarly teeth and pointy things. I always call these things pointy things. People have different hairstyles and such. And of course, he doesn't have any hair, but he does have skin. And so I thought, okay, I'll look at catfish. So that kind of gave him a dreadlock, a kind of a hairstyle, kind of a fashion. He'd move his head, and then just a second later, you'd see dreadlocks moving. That'd be a neat effect on screen. So anything you can think of, you add. Those dangling catfish baubles are reminiscent of a mustache, which comes in handy because Sebulba is definitely the mustache-twirling variety of villain. He's a rock star of the pod racing circuit, a celebrity known far and wide for his skill as a racer, which is matched only by his ruthlessness. And his fans love him for it. You'd have to be rotten to the core to sabotage the pod racer of a nine-year-old slave boy. But that's exactly what Sebulba does, just before the race begins. And he engages in a little smack-talking hatiz with little Annie. Just screw any dough Slimo. Yo kato pantapudu. Jabba the Hutt watches from the royal box above the speedway. He's joined in the box by Gardula the Hutt and a posse of guards, bounty hunters, slaves, and sycophants. Although he presides over the Bunta Eve Classic, Jabba's participation in the ceremony has more to do with the massive revenue generated by gambling. He has little interest in the sport itself. The screams of the engines are not enough to hold his depraved attention span. His presence recalls the historic parallel of Julius Caesar attending events held at the Circus Maximus. Jabba welcomes the crowd, and his commencement announces the start of the race. This is the pilots activate their systems, and dozens of power couplers fire up, with pink voltage crackling between the pod engines and spinning their turbines. Start Under the blazing suns, the grand assembly of machines roar to life. The revving of engines throw even more heat into the parched desert air, which ripples and boils in the afterburn emanating from the pod's thrust stabilizers. Pitted metal flaps open and close. The smell of engine fuel mingles with grease and sand and the perspiration of a thousand alien worlds. All eyes are on the starting line as the crowds lean forward in breathless anticipation. Inside the rumbling cockpits, hands and paws and limbs of different varieties grip their steering columns while muscles tense and prepare for the sound of the starting signal. But Anakin's pod racer stalls, leaving us to wonder if his part in this race will be over before it even begins. Lucas compounds our worries by literally putting Anakin at the tail end of the race. It will take a miracle for him to win now. Some quick thinking, adjusting of his pod controls, and Anakin manages to coax his racer back to life, and it tears off down the thoroughfare. And there goes Skywalker. 
we rejoin the racers in the lead as their pods scream through the beautiful geography of the race course. Under the impressive stone structures of Mushroom Mesa, we get our first taste of the nastiness of competition. Malhanik of the planet Malastare becomes the race's first casualty as he's taken out by Sebulba. And his pod hits a rock wall and shreds into a million pieces. George Lucas instructed his effects team that he didn't want the crashes to be fiery explosions. He wanted the vehicles to be literally ripped apart in a rain of debris shooting off in all directions, which is no less spectacular. It's an even more effective illustration of the speed at which these vehicles are moving. As the race continues, we realize that something is missing. No music. This is a wise decision, because much of the visceral drama of the race comes from the fact that it's edited so tightly, and the sound makes us feel like we're part of the experience. Ben Burt's sound design is astounding. Each racing engine has its own signature noise and personality to match its driver. Anakin's, for instance, is small and fierce, like the buzz of a hornet. Sebulba's, by contrast, is big and loud and thumping, which warns all others in the race to get out of its way, or else. Ben Burt explains. I spent a great deal of my recording time gathering sounds for the pod race sequence, and although I had focused in the past on aircraft and rockets, this time around, uh, George Lucas had suggested that I really record a lot of high-speed automobiles uh, and use those sounds as the basis for the pods. And so uh, I hadn't done a lot of automobiles in my sound design career, so I set out gathering sounds of high-speed cars. Everything's from uh, vintage Ferraris to indie racers, as well as drag racers and souped-up trucks and motorcycles. By creating several distinct geological terrains to race through, the sequence allows the viewer to keep up with the progress of the race. The features of the aforementioned Mushroom Mesa are instantly striking, with their giant boulders perched atop stone bases, shaped by eons of wind erosion. Or maybe they were the result of ancient craftsmanship, of a culture long since forgotten. Visual effects supervisor John Knoll describes the thought that went into these environments. We looked at uh, trying to shoot helicopter plates for this in some exotic locations, but they wouldn't really be exotic enough. I mean, no place on the Earth is, is quite as you know, unusual and distinctive as, as what George had in mind for the terrain here. Also, there's even if you did find a location that was suitably uh, exotic looking, you could never really fly a helicopter fast enough to, uh, to get these plates. So, back to the race. The competitors slip into Beggar's Canyon as they thread the narrow entrance of the dried riverbed through a notch in the plateau. This is the same canyon that Luke Skywalker and his friends snuck into years later to race their skyhoppers. Settlers and outcasts populate the walls of the canyon, where we get a glimpse of a female bounty hunter with powder white skin and a bald head, save for one shock of red hair. Her name is Aura Singh. She has since been made canon by turning up in episodes of the animated series The Clone Wars. After the racers stink through Jag Crag Gorge, another ancient dried tributary, they enter the Laguna Caves and dodge the deadly croppings of stalactites and stalagmites, one of which proves fatal for poor Rats Tyrell. 
the vehicle spill out just ahead of the explosion into Canyon Dune Turn, where another danger awaits. A band of Tuscan raiders is camping on the cliff above the course, and they use the pods as target practice. The race continues in lap two. Even with so much ground to make up, Anakin still manages to pass the spindly armed Gascano, but he's almost taken out when he gets rammed by Team Topangeles in the second fly-through of Mushroom Mesa. Dexterity prevails, and Anakin barrel rolls over Team Toe and leaves him in the dust. Yes, Anakin. Apparently rolling is a good trick. Anakin's speed and precision serve him well as he takes advantage of the perilous turns and avoids the obstacles which slow down his competitors. Not once does Anakin ever cheat, because he doesn't have to. He believes in himself, and he believes in what he's racing for. It's not for glory or fame. Although any child would relish such things, he's racing to help strangers in need. Anakin Skywalker is inherently good and pure of heart. That was the reason Lucas began his story of Anakin at such a young age. He wanted to show how someone who started out so pure could change with time and ultimately succumb to the temptations of the dark side. But in this moment, he's just a little boy with an untarnished idealism and a desire to help others. He's most certainly a Jedi in the making. Cheating, however, is Sebulba's specialty. On the desert plain, just before entering Arch Canyon, he pulls another one of his dirty tricks as he flings a tool over his shoulder and into the open engine of Mars Guo behind him. Mars's engine explodes and collides with the desert floor. The destroyed cockpit barely misses Anakin. This evasive maneuver causes Anakin's pod to spin out of control as one of his engine control cables comes loose. He keeps it together, however, and focuses on getting the cable connected to his cockpit. Holding a clamp, he extends his arm out towards the flapping cable, and with great concentration, he manages to get the cable attached again. It's not clear whether the clamp is magnetized or if Anakin uses the force to recapture the loose cable, but I choose to believe the latter. Anakin accelerates and makes up some lost time, closing the distance between himself and Sebulba. As they exit the Laguna Caves into the Canyon Dune Turn, the Tusken Raiders take aim once more. Their bullets ricochet off Anakin's cockpit, barely missing him, but Team Topangeles isn't as fortunate. For anyone keeping score, Team Toe sorta had that coming for the ramming stunt he pulled on Anakin back in Mushroom Mesa. Anakin is right behind Sebulba as they fly past the stands and into lap three. Sebulba's in the lead, followed closely by Skywalker! Next, we see a beautiful overhead shot of the vehicles navigating the snaking ridge of Waldo Flats, their engines a distant echo. A third and final glimpse of Mushroom Mesa, and then it's on to Beggar's Canyon. Lap three is where all the drama has been building. Here is where Lucas ratchets up the tension. Anakin is neck and neck with his rival Sebulba, and the audience really starts to feel the stakes by witnessing how far Sebulba is willing to go to crush his nemesis. Yeah! 
he forces little Anakin onto a service ramp, sending his pod high above the course, well beyond the range of its repulsor lift. But using gravity to his advantage, Anakin allows his engines to stall, which causes his pod to drop like a stone back towards the canyon. And with a quick control thrust, right into the lead. As he fights to hold on to this lead, Anakin's pod is overtaken by the hulking shape of Sebulba's racer, its violent engine stutter boxing his eardrums. At the worst possible moment, the machine part that Sebulba sabotaged before the start of the race comes apart and fuel begins to pour out of Anakin's engine. This is where John Williams' score makes a dramatic return. It's the final leg of the race. Everything hinges on this moment. Ron Howard, a director and friend of Lucas, saw an early cut of The Phantom Menace, and he made a suggestion for this moment in the movie. He suggested extending it to show Anakin's struggle to get his engine repaired. By falling behind Sebulba, the tension is much greater if it looks like he won't succeed, especially if the audience knows that the clock is running out and there's precious little time left for Anakin to catch up. So George took his advice and let the drama of the moment play out and to greater effect. Anakin's warning lights bark at him. He's losing fuel fast. He flips switches, closes flaps, anything to stop the hemorrhaging of precious fuel. He gets an idea. Shutting off the opening where the fuel escaped, Anakin begins siphoning fuel from the supply in his good engine to fill the damaged one. This restores equilibrium and brings balance back to the performance of his engines. With his pod back in optimum condition, Anakin makes up lost time and quickly catches up with Sebulba, who refuses to concede ground to his rival. In the final stretch, on the hut flats, Sebulba catches a glimpse of the tiny Skywalker in his peripheral. He banks sharply to the right, and his engine collides with Anakin's. The two pods lock together, threatening to take both racers out. Shmi Skywalker winces as she and Qui-Gon, Padme and Jar Jar Binks watch helplessly from an observation tower. Qui-Gon closes his eyes and meditates on the Force. He believes in Anakin. Back on the course, their pod racers are locked in a deadly standoff, but in a flash, a coolant hose ruptures and the clutch releases. The pod racers separate, sending Sebulba careening into a boulder. His engines disintegrate from the impact, and his cockpit bumps along the surface of the sand until it comes to rest in his moment of defeat. A little slave boy put his life on the line to help others, and it paid off big time. Although he doesn't know it yet, his victory will open new doors for him, new possibilities and adventures he could only dream about before. As Anakin is hoisted upon the shoulders of Qui-Gon Jinn, he is every nine-year-old boy or girl dreaming about adventures and wishing they too could be trained as a Jedi. This is what these films are all about. And while the tone of Star Wars has often skewed younger than many fans would prefer, the creator himself always intended for these movies to be for the youngest fans among us. This is what we stand for. You're about to enter the real world. You're 12 years old. You're going to go on into the big world. 
you're moving away from your parents being the center focus, you're probably scared, and here's a little idea of some of the things you should pay attention to. Friendships, honesty, trust, and doing the right thing, living on the light side, avoiding the dark side. I still take issues with some of the creative choices in The Phantom Menace, and there are entire scenes and characters that I find myself tuning out of, because they clearly were not created with a middle-aged Star Wars fan like me in mind. But the pod race is one of those sequences I find myself returning to time and again. It's such a swing-for-the-fences moment in the history of cinema, and it easily sweeps me up in its visual language and octane adrenaline. It's a simple story of how a slave boy became the first human to ever win a pod race, but it's executed using the very best innovation and design the industry could provide in 1999. The editing is tight and exciting, and showcases the skill in which Lucas excels with visual narrative. I love it, and I probably always will, because when those engines start up, I feel the heat of the desert suns, hear the roar of the crowd, and I too am a nine-year-old, eager to tear through the desert with a dream and a hope to make the universe a better place. And with that, we come to the end of Episode 4. If you have enjoyed this episode of Forever Star Wars or any of the podcast series in the Clashing Sabers network, we'd love for you to subscribe and give us a rating and review, especially if you think we're doing a great job. If you have something you'd like to hear me cover in a future episode of Forever Star Wars, shoot me an email at clashingsabersnetwork at gmail.com. Be sure to put Forever Star Wars in the subject line. Check us out on Twitter at Clashing Sabers or follow me on Twitter at DJMMarquis. That's D-J-M-M-A-R-Q-U-I-S. Thanks again for listening. I really appreciate the support and kind words about the show, and keep giving me that constructive feedback. I really do appreciate all the suggestions and insights, so please keep them coming. The Force is strong with this community. The views and commentary of Forever Star Wars do not reflect those of Lucasfilm or Disney. All licensed sound and music are property of their respective copyright holders. Clashing Sabers and Forever Star Wars are not affiliated with Lucasfilm, Disney, or any of their subsidiaries. The commentary and production of this series is the property of Clashing Sabers and Forever Star Wars and may only be used with permission. Until next time, may the Force be with you. And always remember... Your focus determines your reality.